Hi, Tal. Hi, Jane. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's really nice to return the favor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've traded now. Um, I'm going to introduce you and then I will give you an opportunity to add anything to that introduction that you would like. Perfect. So this is my friend, Ta Alimot. He is uh, an outlaw Jew, longtime <laughs> Soto Zen student, Laohu Qigong practitioner, psychedelicist, musician, astrologer, writer, podcaster, father, and husband. Um, yeah, anything that you want to add to that or give us a little bit of background of how you came to be all of those things? Oh, well, they all have different stories, uh, but they do all go together. Uh, they're, they're all, it's kind of hard to leave any of them out at this point, uh, as far as like what I'm doing here, talking to you. Um, one detail I might add for those who don't know me is that my wife is a rabbi, um, and I actually, uh, often identify specifically as rabbi's husband, because I think that is a particular role kind of communally, ceremonially, and in the family too. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of a job unto itself. So uh, I guess the point is, like, I have a lot of lineages. Um, I have very intense initiations in all of the ones listed. And uh, I take those things all very seriously as commitments. Yeah, very cool. I think we will get into today how a lot of those kind of weave together. Um, so, yeah, you do a lot of stuff. There's so much that we could talk about. I want to start by talking about the astrology piece. This podcast is for people in healing and helping professions. And I use that that phrase because I, it feels very broad to me. Even just the word healers, I use that very broadly. And I, I definitely consider astrologers in that crowd. Um, so I want to talk about your astrology work and specifically kind of through this lens of um, your role in this, what I consider a healing or helping profession. So, um, this is not an astrology podcast though. So for a non-astrology crowd, could you give a little bit of an overview of, um, two of the main types of astrology that you do, horary and electional astrology? Sure. Those are great choices. And they're really sort of just different approaches to the same kind of astrology, I would say, um, which is, uh, something that I think a lot of people who have been exposed only to a little bit of astrology or to a superficial kind of astrology aren't even really aware is possible, um, which is uh, that it uses charts of the moment rather than natal charts as the primary um, chart. And that the, what that means is the chart of a particular place and time um, rather than the place and time of the birth of the native. Now, you do use natal charts in electional astrology in a way that is kind of secondary, but critically important. But the 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 uh, the point of electional astrology is that you're choosing a time and place to take an action, and the chart of that time and place is what you are electing. So uh, this is something that I offer for people who are looking for the right time uh, to take a particular action that they have in mind, um, including Jane. Jane has been one of my electional clients. And uh, what happened is uh, Jane had a venture to launch and described it for me. And I found an auspicious time and place uh, to begin that venture because that beginning becomes sort of a birth for that enterprise. Uh, and the same sort of principle applies where like, 
the chart of that time and place describes the destiny of the venture. So it depends what kind of thing you're electing. It could be a business adventure, a business adventure. It could be, it could be business. It could be a relationship. You know, you could, it could be like for asking someone out or proposing to someone. Uh, it can be any, anything that you need to take an intentional step and start. Um, and the chart that I will choose for that time and place will have to tell the story of that kind of venture being successful. And uh, the way that the natal chart of the person taking the action comes in is a secondary step where that chart describes their life and their destiny. So the electional chart has to root is what the word, the technical term is in English. Um, it, the, the, the electional chart has to root into the nativity. It has to express the nativity uh, successfully so that, you know, it's not just that this, this venture comes out of thin air, it's part of the destiny of a person. And so it needs to fit. The puzzle needs to sort of lock together in order for it to be a valid or possible expression of the destiny of that person. Um, but, you know, electional astrology, the thing that people might be surprised to, to learn is that it doesn't really involve me doing a reading of the nativity of the person. I don't tell them about who they are. I tell them about what about their venture and how it's going to work and maybe, you know, relate it to their own nativity in certain symbolic ways. Um, but horary astrology is actually the kind I learned to do first, and that exclusively uses the chart of the moment. Uh, and what what and horary means of the hour, which is what a chart of the moment is. I don't know if I explained that. It means it means I take the chart for where I am at the exact moment that I receive a question from someone and use that chart to answer the question. So the, so horary astrology means of the hour, uh, but it's also sometimes called interrogational astrology or the astrology of question. And so in the same way as the election is sort of the birth chart of this future thing that you're deciding to do at a particular place in time, a horary chart is the birth of a question. And so you take the chart for that question and you see how it plays out and you're able to drive the answer. And this, this is, there's an extremely wide range of things that you can do with horary astrology, often with a lot of specificity. So you can make the kinds of predictions that a lot of like technical natal astrologers do based on the playing out of the natal chart of the person, uh, but you can do it on the spot. And so it's actually a branch of astrology that's that's very useful um, for people who don't know their birth time. Uh, and can you, know, you can still get uh, a valid question answered for that person, even if they don't, even if they don't know their chart at all, which of course, for most of history was the case for the vast majority of people. So it really kind of democratized astrology to be able to use it this way. Both of these techniques are sort of advanced. They rely on more precise kinds. Of, I mean, advanced, when I say advanced, I don't mean astrologically advanced. I mean, astronomically advanced, technically advanced. They require the, uh, the ability to do more precise calculations of where planets are going to be when um, than was possible in the most ancient periods of astrology. Um, and so, you know, in in the classical Hellenistic era, most of the astrology that we have record of anyway, um, was natal astrology for people who could afford to like commission the calculations to be done to of you know because the time and place where that person was born was like important enough for somebody to do all of that math. Um, but later, as you know, tables of things began to be printed and more sort of quick and dirty forms of calculation became possible. Um, it became easier for easier to cast a chart, and so this sort of medieval era 
in the greater Islamic world is where these two techniques developed uh, as a sort of like uh, more everyday form of astrology. And that's that's the stuff that I learned to do and have the most practice with. So people submit requests to you for a horary, for example, say you get an email, it lands in your inbox at 9.03 on Tuesday morning. That's when you cast the chart for for the location that you're in when you get that. Yeah, I think people have different philosophies on how to interpret the sort of original teachings about when to cast that chart, uh, because, you know, it was done at a time it was, you know, this, this technology, I mean, this astrology was invented at a time and place where, you know, these things were taking place in person. So it was pretty obvious when to cast the chart for. It was for when the person came into your office. Um, the email era has sort of changed the way that that works. And I think that some people have, and there's kind of two ways of looking at it. Some people have taken it to mean uh, when you understand the question. So you cast the chart for when you, re when you read the email figure out what the question is and then cast the chart. And then a lot of those people will uh, take their time to go back and forth with the client to understand, to make sure that they have all the information and understand the question and then cast the chart. I cast a chart for the timestamp of the email that I receive, sort of no matter what, even if it does take a lot of time and back and forth for me to figure out what the real deal is with the question. And the reason for that is that I consider the moment the person chose to get astrology on this matter to be the symbolically important moment. That's the moment when the question was really born to me. And, you know, I don't know how deep down the rabbit hole you want to go about, like, how does astrology work? But, you know, I think that there are a lot of pretty potent, like, spiritual questions about this and, like, what is the significant moment? And I mean, I would just, I could just fast forward to sort of what my quick answer would be, which is like, I kind of believe that all moments are equally significant and you can interpret them all to tell, I mean, you know, the real truth is that all time is happening simultaneously. And so, you know, you, you have all of the information has to be there. So the choice of which chart to use is a matter of which moment makes sense to the interpreter um, and this is, I think, getting to what you really want to talk about, which is like the astrologer is a medium for something. So it is up to that person's channel, like which moment is significant in a way that can be understood in the language of the heavens as the answer to the question. Yeah, totally. Um, you mentioned that I've done an election with you. I've also done a horary with you. And mm. um, it was this question of like, uh, should I move now or should I give it the summer where I am? Mm. And I wasn't even thinking about it in terms of like, oh, well, this is a horary, so the timing of the question matters. So maybe I should be doing something on my end to like relate it to the timing. But I do remember that there was like this build happening. It was like I had the idea that I wanted to reach out to you about the question at some point, but I could tell that it wasn't like time to do it. And then I would think over the matter of a couple of weeks, I kept like periodically being like, oh, yeah, I should like reach out to Tall and I think he could help me with this. And then I remember there was a day where it was like, I got to decide, you know, I like, it's getting to be time. I should reach out. And I remember, yeah, you saying something about how like, oh, this is a really <laughs> a good time to pick. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, even though that I, I wasn't doing that intentionally in retrospect, I could see um, the time choosing me a little bit. Yeah. It happens all the time and it gets even way crazier than that too. You know, like I, I'm not, terribly surprised when somebody who's like super tapped in like gets the nudge to do the chart at that time and something spectacular is happening in the sky but i have i've had people who 
have taken months. I, I, I people, I have people who have who got the ping to get a horary from me six months before they knew what the question they needed to ask me was. But like that initial sort of like motivation tuned them into the arising and receding of questions in their life. And then eventually one comes up where they're like, oh, that's it. That's the one. And then that's when they ask. And I still count it from that decision point as the as the the actual birth. But like I have enough experience with these kinds of charts to know that like if you had a chart for the moment that you first wanted to ask the question, and we rooted the one where you finally did into that one, it would be crazy. Something something really spectacular would happen. Cool. Okay, yeah, let's talk about this question stuff, the birth of questions. Um, mm. One of my favorite phrases that you've written, you wrote this on your blog, was questions themselves are a literal birth of significance. Mm. Um, I am a lover of questions. That's why I have this podcast. I love, I love the art of crafting questions, finding really good questions, drawing people out through questions. Um, so yeah, that phrase is like drool worthy for me. Mm. And so I'm kind of curious, like since writing that or since having this realization or since engaging with the astrology of questions this way, like has it affected your relationship with questions kind of outside of astrology, just the way that you relate to questions and asking them? Yes, I think that it has actually caused some tension. I was just writing about this yesterday because there are, there are needs for answers all the time. And so the, you know, the, 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 the occasion of casting a horary is a is a, is a moment of needing an answer, right? So it doesn't actually have the open endedness of asking a question and letting an answer come. The answer is uh, is a process of interpretation of something that was really fixed at the moment of asking the question, and that is very useful for solving problems. But it doesn't actually give me the space to live inside of questions, which I have other practices for. And I, uh, I, I do have like celestial practices for living inside of questions, like looking up at the sky and talking and, and asking questions of the sky. And that is something that I don't think, I don't think that the sort of certainty that astrology or near certainty i don't i don't want to be too like definitive about what astrology is capable of doing but like the 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 definite nature of astrological charts i don't think would be meaningful to me without the balance of being able to openly question the universe uh and not know the answer like there needs to be space for the answer to come this is a very important principle in a lot of horary texts that i think that some maybe more modern, um, you know, sciency minded astrologers might not give it space for that. Like, if you don't, there are texts that say, like, you should meditate, like for 24 hours before you cast a horary chart or things of that nature. Um, or if you don't have like a clear line to the divine, like an active prayer practice or petition the like the planet ruling the hour of the chart that you're casting, you're not going to get an answer. And I've certainly had bum charts before. You know, there are actually techniques that made it into the tradition for identifying when a chart is not radical. R radical is the word, 
that's related to that concept of rooting that I mentioned before. Uh, it basically means the chart is nonsense and you have to be able to identify that. And the possibility of that, I think, like reveals the 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 space that needs to be open in order for this practice, in, in order for any divination practice to work. I think most people who have played around with tarot or other sort of like quicker and dirtier forms of divination have had the experience of the chart of the cards or whatever telling you like this is no good or like don't ask that question or you've you've asked this question too many times and things of that nature. Horary can do that too. And I think that's because the universe does that. That is the that is the nature of like questions and answers for be it particular beings experiencing things and the door is not always open for that and so i have to make a practice of opening myself to not knowing in order to make space to receive answers in this way that i do on a pretty kind of industrial scale at this point like i i have to keep the channel open in order to serve clients and that is a responsibility i take very seriously. And I hope that that is clear in my offerings to people because they have to come with me, come to me with a lot of trust. A lot of these questions are very, very personal and high stakes. And the, uh, you know, and, and I, they're trusting me to even be able to present the answer in a sensitive way, like let alone to figure out what it is correctly. Um, and they have to also be open to me being wrong. The possibility exists, you know. I'm, I, have, I have a lot of transparency in my process. I write up every horary chart that comes through if the client consents to that ahead of time. And many times they don't because it's too personal. But I, I, I post my performance, you know. I give people the expectation. At this point, I've done like 160 horary charts in my formal practice. And I have like a very consistent 80% accuracy rate. And I feel like that that first of all, that's pretty good. It's way better than flipping a coin. Like you might as well ask the question of astrology and see what happens with those kinds of odds, you know? But I think that that 20% reflects something about the, uh, the, the fallibility of the medium or the, or the, at least just like the, the um, difficulty of remaining open as a channel for this kind of information. And one interesting thing about all the charts I've gotten wrong, and you can find them on my site, you can see all the ones that I've gotten wrong, is that I figure out what was wrong with it every time. Like it's never been, I've been almost stumped a few times, and those have been the scariest things that have happened to me in all of astrology, because like if, if the chart looks perfectly right and then the answer is something else, that means it doesn't work, right? But that has never turned out to be the case. I've always been able to figure out what went wrong. And that is a huge relief to me because it means that I'll do better next time. And it puts the onus on me as the medium, not on the system of astrology or like the universe being a totally chaotic place that makes no sense. It's it's just about further and further refinement. Mm. What drew you to these forms of astrology, horary and electional? It's a really good question. I I was kind of just adrift in the world of like, wow, this stuff is real. Uh, and sitting with a few, you know, helpful teacher mentor figures and trying to figure out what steps to take. Also, not at all sure that I was going to ever offer a client practice of any kind. And the first nudge came uh, from the great online astrologer, Daniel Norman of everhappening.com, 
Daniel underscore the underscore lion on Twitter. Uh, and uh, Daniel, just at some point I was talking about the sky. I was talking about the real time chart in some way where I was able to derive significance from what was happening in the chart of the moment. And Daniel said, you should check out horror astrology. I feel like you'd be really good at that. And I checked out what it was at that time. And I was like, wow, that sounds very cool. I did not know that you could do that with astrology. And I sort of bookmarked that. Um, but the the path that actually led me to study it was, was more straightforward and it like resonated with that conversation, but I hadn't really pursued it until um, Hawk, my like, pri I would say primary mentor in the art of astro astronomical divination, let's say, um, and the fundamentals of Hellenistic astrology, uh, told me that Adam, uh, Alan Voss, their teacher, their sort of main technical teacher, uh, has a year-long horary course that was starting soon after we were sort of finishing up our training container. And it just seemed like a very logical next step at the time. And by that point, I realized that the chart of the moment really was what I cared about. That like what I what I do on a daily basis as a personal practice of watching the astrological chart is keep track of how the sky above my head is changing and what is changing in my environment alongside it. And so that's a skill that you really need to have as a horary astrologer in order to be quick enough to, to respond in time to a question, you need to be aware of the chart and, you know, that, so I was, and so I, that seemed like a good way to drill the fundamentals of an astrological chart and get a ton of practice. That was sort of how I saw it. But, but by the time I got through the class, I was like, okay, I actually want to off like this is this is how I'm going to get practice this is how I'm going to get up to a meaningful number of charts under my belt in a short amount of time but it's also how I'm going to stay sharp forever I'm going to keep using the chart that way and I've had days where I've had three or four horary questions with like kind of the exact same chart but completely different questions and those have been the days where I feel like wow I get what like the profession of being an astrologer is like and uh, I really value that experience that sort of um, ongoing constant relationship with the sky and the chart and that will always be at the center of it for me and other forms of astrology that I that I do offer now uh, to varying extents are are special projects they take time they take a lot of you know looking at lots of charts and and, and making doing a lot of measurements and making a lot of you know cross references between them and I love to do those projects but that's not the core of my work that is an expansion of the set of tools that I have um, to suit specific purposes and really what astrology is for me is uh, watching constant watching of the sky and horary is the quickest route to deriving meaning from that every day yeah yeah, it's like I'm seeing you as like a sky watcher, which is actually very different from how it seems like a lot of astrologers these days are um, mainly looking at 2D charts online. Yeah, that used to cause me a lot of frustration. And I wrote a lot about how little of the kind of astrology I wanted to see I saw around me um, at the sort of most online, <laughs> if you will, parts of my uh, like pursuit of this, you know, learning and this craft and this community. Um, and I got a lot of pushback 
frankly, from people who thought that that was an elitist point of view for some reason, uh, which is a reason that I still don't understand. Like, I don't, I still don't understand why. I still don't understand why people uh, could, like, like, I don't understand what the problem is with looking at the sky as a, you know, that's like the most democratic thing to me. Like, understanding a chart technically is something that you have to put a ton of, like, brain time into. And I'm talking about the sky over every single person's head. It's like the one globally available spiritual practice that everyone shares. Um, okay, let's talk about the role of the astrologer themselves. Um, and yeah, kind of what I was saying at the beginning through this lens as a healer or a helper um, and your connection or chemistry with the client and how that factors into um your reading of the chart of the moment or or the chart that you're looking at um and yeah i heard you talking about this on another podcast where you mentioned you use the phrase being a medium not a technician uh-huh. on the luminaries in and out of sect podcast and i know that your your client work is mainly or maybe entirely asynchronous people submit um their questions or their requests to you and then you get back to them via email so i'm also curious how that the asynchronous nature plays into that that chemistry? Yeah, that's a fair question that a lot of people have for me uh, about my offering. I think that the online era of astrology has really like developed around a model of sitting face to face, talking over a computer screen like you and I are now as an exchange that is materially important to the reading. And for some practitioners, it's the most important part of the reading and the astrology sort of just is, sits next to you as a reference. Really, the interpersonal part is the part where the work is happening. And I um, I believe very fervently in that. I think that that is a, a, a very important aspect of the practice, but it isn't the kind that I have the energetic and temporal availability for on a very regular basis. So I uh, I do offer astrology asynchronously. And I think that there are some reasons, some, some skills that I may have, or, or I don't know if you could call them skills, maybe you could just call them like irregularities, ex- eccentricities uh, that, that, that make me particularly inclined to that, where I do get a pretty good read off of somebody from their writing. And so I actually would prefer to sort of parse through their words one at a time to get where they're coming from. But that said, I have a lot, because of the way that my offerings are structured, I get a lot of return people. I start to I start to learn their story over time. I also get a lot of readings from people that I know because they're priced in such a way where it's not like the kind of thing that uh, feels like a huge commitment or offering a lot of the time. Sometimes it's like, I might as well go ask Tal about this because it's like not a huge outlay and it'll it'll only take me a minute if we don't have to make an appointment. Uh, So I do a lot of readings for people that I know, but I also get to know people through text in a way that I think maybe is unusual, but but it's certainly sufficient for me. But there's also a benefit to me from being able to primarily use the like somatic layer of the astrology as the reading um, and not be very influenced by the person. And I think that 
that is a terrifying prospect for a lot of astrologers to not be able to rely on the tone and the, the manner and the you know facial expressions of the person. Um, but I actually, and I was terrified to do it at first, if there's a very like YOLO quality to like delineating a chart in writing without somebody in front of you and being like, this is what's going to happen in your life and sending it to them. Uh, but the results have been so consistent, consistently 80%, right? That I uh, have begun to realize that that's actually the sensation to trust. The sensation that like, I am feeling this and that I'm going to transcribe what I'm feeling for this person. And when they reflect back to me that I did sense things accurately for them uh, without the personal contact that that they would have maybe had with another practitioner, I think that they actually find it reassuring. And I certainly do as well. That like, this is, this is information coming from a different realm and that it doesn't involve any kind of cold reading or like other, other sort of, you know, I'm not trying to denigrate like psychic techniques or like, you know, things that you can drive off of a person, but like, that's not what I'm offering. I'm not trying to get that entangled with other people's fields. I'm trying to tell them what the planets are saying and the fact that it works without them having to be there i think is impressive to them and i think that that is an important part of doing astrology in this day and age and maybe doing any number of other kinds of spiritual practice or divination um, it has to be impressive because we live in a very dazzling and impressive world and the only way to like remain enchanted with the unseen is to be impressed by what it can offer in the realm of the seen. Yeah, I love that. It makes me think, I hadn't thought of this before, but it makes me think of how there are um, energy workers who work remotely who will like get on a call and do energy work that way. And then there are also people who will do distance sessions where you're not even on a call with them and they're working mm -hmm. on you and they, they prefer that for kind of a similar reason that you described it's still different because it's still kind of like working directly with the body whereas you're communing with other bodies but mm -hmm. um yeah I think it also just makes a lot of sense to me that the written word would be I don't know you're a writer and you're so verbal that like that that feels like it's really in your style and um a nice thing about having all of this variety of the way that people offer readings or consultations is that like I'm sure there are people who are more comfortable doing it this way and not being on a call with you the yeah. whole time it's like mm -hmm. per, kind of preferring the pen pal status or something it's, it's like better for their systems yeah it's funny that I didn't mention that but that absolutely is just sort of my inclination as a as a creator of stuff and so uh, and not not just writing itself but actually correspondence I mean I love writing messages back and forth especially long ones and so I, you know, I, I, I put love into that let into that email so that it feels like receiving something from me that you get to keep and read over and over again. And like, yes, you can watch the Zoom recording of your session, too. And I have those from my sessions that I've done. Uh, I don't do it very often, but I do go back to read uh, write ups of charts all the time. Uh, that's just how I am. That's just what what I do. And I think you're right that there are people that want that offering. I mean, one thing that is worth sort of mentioning about just the whole field of people offering astrology readings online is that for people who are aligned 
spiritually with one another in that field, there is a very strong desire to work cooperatively rather than competitively. Uh, and I, 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 I don't know, it's not universally held, but like it's a very strong value of mine. And, and I've found myself in the company of many, many practitioners who share that desire and want to all work together, right? And, and, and what that leads us to do is differentiate our offerings in ways that are supportive and ways that, are, that make it very easy to refer clients around uh, because that somebody comes to you with a question and it's a better fit for someone else and you know not something that you offer and that is a really beautiful thing to me because you know probably common to every single form of energetic or spiritual work that there is there's just like a fit issue sometimes and and you between a practitioner and a client and it's you know you could describe it as just interference or or like dissonance or some some kind of just basic acoustic problem with working with somebody. And it's good to have a huge network of people to refer those people to rather than just say, sorry, you're out of luck. And also I receive a lot of referrals because of exactly that issue of people uh, want, like preferring to have a text version rather than, a, than, than schedule a call. And it's better for my energy level too. Nice. Um... Yeah, a couple of things I want to come back to in there. I think like maybe two questions ago, you said something like the somatic layer of the astrology. You said the word somatic, so I'm going to bite. Can you say yeah. more about it? <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about the movement of the spheres. That's, it's it's not, the there, you talked about how a lot of astrologers use 2D charts and like have a very abstract relationship to what they represent. That's, very true, but it's true on so many levels that I almost don't know where to begin. It's it's like there are there are people who uh, who understand that the chart represents physical space, but think of it as the whole of physical space. That like the 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 ecliptic, like the flat pancake around the planet Earth, is like the only part of space that we're related to. That's that is uh, like going backwards into the situation for me like what i experience is that i am on a whirling ball in a very like a, a dance choreographed billions of years ago watching it all happen overhead and feeling that motion is the basic practice of doing this like the chart is there like a speedometer right? It's, it's not, it's not, the chart isn't a picture. The chart is a measurement of the condition of that dance at that, at a slice of time. And so every chart is implicitly in motion to me. And one of the most fundamental skills to me of learning astrology is learning the speeds and periods and phases of the planets so that when you look at a static chart, you see what's going to happen next. And you cannot accurately judge a horary chart without that skill because you have to know which planet is overtaking which, whether they're going to make contact or not before they change signs or whatever, before some, before some other faster planet swoops in and makes contact. You have to know how that whole thing is moving. And so it's not a metaphorical like body relationship it is it is like almost something that i have to use my inner ear to do because there are 
lots and lots of elliptical shapes uh, and bodies of very different mass at very di different distances from one another moving in extremely intricate ways. And there are definite events happening all of the time in that choreographed movement. It's not chaos, it's, it's an intricate pattern. And you have to have a feel for it in order to do it to me. Hmm. So why for horary in particular would that, would it matter what's happening next? I mean, like from an intuitive sense, it makes a lot of sense to me that you just want to feel what's happening, not just in that moment, but for horary in particular, why, why does that matter? It's a lovely question. And it is actually arguably the case for any astrological chart, but you have to know what's happening next. It's just about what time scale you are in perceptually and, and like symbolically. And in a nativity, the aspects that are forming between planets represent kind of lifelong themes, because that is in effect the question that you're asking, like what is going to happen to this person? And so, you know, whether an aspect, which is an angle across the zodiac between two planets or more, is forming or separating is a th almost thematic concern in a nativity. But in a horary, horary has in some ways the most real time form of time and in some ways the most symbolic. It's obviously those are opposite things. So it's kind of hard to explain what I mean. But you uh you are taking the moment of the of the question as a microcosmic explanation of the answer. And so the planets, first of all in a horary, the planets signify the matters at in question. So that is the essential interpretive task of a horary chart is assigning significators based on the topics of the houses. And we're, this is getting way into like how to actually do astrology and probably too into it. But the point is uh, you, you, the way, the reason you have to understand the question is that you have to know who the players are in and what kind of question it is. Is it a stay or go question? Like Jane asked me, is it an, am I going to get the job question? Is it, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, are they going to fall in love with me question? That those are all topically different. And so you use different parts of the chart to identify which planets are involved. So once you know which planets are involved, then you have to see what's happening to them. And if they're about, if you, if the question is, am I going to get this job? And the significator of the job and the significator of the person asking the question are in imminent contact with, with each other, with good reception for one another in places in the sky where they have good relationships with each other, that, that's a yes. That means it's going to happen. It means the next thing that happens is these planets meet. And those planets meeting represents the meeting of the person with the job that they want to get. But if the planet representing the person and the planet representing the job are in an aspect that is forming, but a faster planet that signifies a different candidate is going to get there first, that's a no. So you have to be able to see the whole thing play out. And of course, you can click buttons in astrological software to see what happens next, but you have to know what you're looking for in order to know how long to look ahead or you know, even to do that at all. So you have to watch it constantly in order to, and you, and, you, know, you also come in, like I said, if you're watching the chart constantly, you're coming into the chart knowing about the big ones that are in the sky right now. And so, you know, if you see that 
mean, that's gonna factor in in some way. The question is, which things does it represent? So you have to you have to know the planets very well on their own in order to do either one of those things. Oh, that's so cool. I'm so glad we talked about this because I can just like feel what you do more now. I can feel the motion of it. I can feel how somatic it is. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it is. Never gets old. Only gets yeah. crazier, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so kind of back to the thing about what is the role of the astrologer themselves. Do you see yourself in the chart sometimes and how does that come up? You mean like in a horror chart for someone else? Yeah, I guess, I guess probably more horary than electional or maybe, maybe both. It depends. I mean, the election, it would depend very highly on what it's for. Uh, the, the, uh, and, and so like, usually no, like usually I'm looking way ahead for something that I'm not going to be involved with anymore. Uh, and that's not, that's not there, but, but, but the astrologer shows up in the horary question all the time. The, the, there's a practice that is older than the horary instructional texts that it's based on, which is sometimes called consultation charts, which is casting the chart for the reading meaning like the appointment between the client and the astrologer. And in a lot of cases in the liter in the literature, like in the records of astrologers from history, those charts are secret. Like the astrologer casts a consultation chart to see like whether the client is trying to trick them or whether there's something about the question that they're not sharing or that they don't understand or whether there's some secret factor. It's like a form of getting information about the consultation. And so obviously, you know, you could just look at that chart a different way and see it as like the chart is a way of explaining, of, of answering the question that the person is coming you to and coming to you with. And so that's that's where the practice takes its origin. And uh, there are uh, a lot of ways that the astrologer could be a problem in that chart. Uh, and the uh, but also it could be, you know, it could be the other way around. The client could be the problem. So uh, there are. Uh, lots of significations for each of the houses of the chart but the basic thing that never changes is that the ascendant the, the point that's on the eastern horizon rising at the time of the chart represents the client and so the descendant the opposite the western horizon the setting point um, always represents an other or counterpart uh, to that person so if it's a question about a spouse that the seventh house will represent the spouse. If it's a question about a business deal, it will represent the counterparty to the transaction. If it's a question about an enemy, the seventh house will signify that, that person's enemy, um, at least their known enemy. There's a different house that signifies a hidden enemy that they don't know about. Uh, but the seventh house also, maybe for like spatially obvious reasons, given what I just said, signifies the astrologer, or can signify the astrologer. And so if, there, if, the, if the descendant is afflicted in various ways, that could show the astrologer getting the answer wrong or something like that, or the client not believing them, even if the answer is right or something, something, some entanglement like that. And a lot of the, I mentioned earlier that there are certain explicit techniques for identifying whether a chart is bad. Those are called the considerations before judgment. William Lilly, a medieval English astrologer, is the, I guess like Renaissance English astrologer, is the one who has sort of written the most condensed list of those that most people use. Um, that is, a lot of those are concerned with uh, 
a seventh house afflictions saturn on the seventh on the descendant or or on the ascendant like basically showing an error in the judgment of the astrologer or a conflict with the astrologer and i have certainly had charts where that has been an issue before um, and some of the ones that i've gotten wrong have shown me clear seventh house affliction you know they've been like perfect descriptions of me getting the question wrong. you know uh so that happens all the time yeah but when it's a, when it's a question for somebody i know it happens in different ways. And uh, I've actually started to kind of wind down the practice of doing uh, astrology on things that I'm personally involved in, um, because that is not an impartial read. And that's usually what it says is like, um, it almost can say like, you are interfering in the outcome of this right now by doing this. Uh, so, you know, I, I I try to stay out of it and, and I'm trying to get into a practice of, uh, hiring other people to do astrology for me when because doing it for myself is uh it's it's too biased of a perspective sometimes mm -hmm. yeah i was gonna ask you about that i don't think i've ever asked a professional astrologer this it's like how does astrology fit into your personal life outside of consultations <laughs> outside of favors you do for friends and family um yeah like how much do you astrologize your own life uh yeah the answer has changed a lot and a lot of the changes have been very deliberate because when you're starting you have to do it all the time like you you have to do it constantly in order to understand how this stuff even works uh how, how it works at all primarily and then secondarily how it relates to you how you yourself are expressed in the astrology of the moment like which planets signify you or mean something to you at that time like that's something that takes experience to learn but it also gets super complicated and like I, you know, I've written a number of times about form, the kinds of divination I've done on things that are happening to me where I've gotten into like real pickles about like wanting something good not to happen in order for the astrology to come true or things like things of that nature. You just don't want to be in that situation. And so I, you know, I, I, uh, in some ways having a client practice once I was ready to, which I took a lot of psyching myself up and let alone training um, was a way of continuing to practice without having to do it on myself. And that's very important to me. So now that I have that practice and it's ongoing and I get to do a lot of technical astrology um, on questions where I can be impartial, it's taken on a much more um, devotional and kind of secretive spiritual nature. I use it kind of to tune my personal practice to make sure everything is aligned or to understand what's wrong when something is wrong. Um, but in a very moment to moment way, like I'm not asking, I'm not doing astrology on a whole lot of big life questions for myself anymore, uh, because I can sort of see that playing out. You know, I don't, I don't, I, it's a good, once you're familiar enough with the astrology of not just the current week, but like, you know, the months and years ahead and your own sort of uh, natal timing of various big life events, you start to see things lining up. And often it's good enough to get the gist and let it happen, be ready for it, but not like look into the details of what like exact excruciating thing is going to happen to you that day because you can go crazy doing that. Yeah, I know. That's why I asked, because like the level of detail that seems available, it could be really, really overwhelming. Um, 
Yeah, that also, I just get a very sort of like somatic embodied flavor from that. It's sort of like you're moving with the rhythm, so you don't need to like really be in all the details. Um, and then I'm also thinking about the thing you said about horaries, like, well, have you tried meditating on the question for 24 hours first? Like, do you find that with electional stuff too? It's like, can I like kind of feel into when I want to do it first before I, I go through an election? Or is it more just like, well, this is like a really big thing I'm doing, so I should probably elect this. It depends on what the thing is. And I, I think that there, there's a, there, electional is a lot more subtle, I think, in this way. Because like asking a question, you know, well, asking a question, I think, only gets troublesome at the high end. Because like if, you, if, you're, if you're like wondering when you're going to die and you're like, hmm, maybe I should ask a horror about that. Like you're in a serious situation. You probably shouldn't do that. Although, you know, sometimes I find on questions that are way, way, way too big like that, the Oracle is fairly compassionate about saying, go touch grass and don't do astrology for three days as the answer to that question, you know. Uh, but electional, electional is subtle on all kinds of levels. And there are definitely things that are not a big enough deal to worry yourself about the exact chart at that time. And those are the ones that I tend to like sort of, well, what, I mean, there are techniques though for it also. Like I will, I will turn, I will point someone to planetary hour observation in order to, like if their question is like something that they're just looking for like a little executive function boost on and it isn't really like a matter of huge consequence. I might say like, do that at the hour uh, that is ruled by the planet that is like naturally associated with that activity. And often that is like a big enough deal that it is actually like a purely magical experience for that person to do that. And that's wonderful. Um, and then, you know, there are, um, there's like another tier up of things where like, if you, if you like want to get a haircut, this is the haircut is a classic example. Um, you know, there's my, my friend, Shuli, uh, it's Tagni Newt on Twitter and uh, uh, shulirose.com. Um, there, like, the, the, there's a there's just blog post about a about when to get a haircut or how to elect a haircut. And like, you can be very precious about how to get a haircut. And if it's like a haircut for your sibling's wedding, like, you might really want to do an election, like a proper election for that. But like, if it's a haircut for uh, being on a podcast with your friend, which I did not get a haircut for. Um, you, you can still use like the moon sign of that day or the moon's aspects that day to like, you would probably want the moon being the significator of the body, for example, and or Venus, the significator of beauty and aesthetics to like be in good shape as opposed to bad shape in a very general way. And you might luck out better with your haircut in that situation, or like at least just try to avoid like it being totally like hosed that day. Uh, you know, so there, there's a, there's a, there's a middle tier, you know, the moon always sort of offers that every day kind of thing, because the moon moves so much faster than everyone else. But after that point, like, I, I really think that anything that, that, that is causing someone anxiety about the outcome, uh, that is justified in any, to any extent, like is worth electing, because at that point, you're on the other side of the gradient and like doing an astrological election is reassuring. It puts you at ease about the timing for that because you know that you've done the magic to make it as fortuitous of a moment as possible. And then you can relax into that. And that is uh, that has a therapeutic value to doing a good job at that thing. Mm -hmm. Beautiful.
Okay, let's transition into the next section that I want to talk to you about, which is householder spirituality, which I know is very important to you. Um, so you have a community that you're running now called Householders. Could you talk about that a little bit? Why you started the group, what y'all are up to there? Yeah, um, Householders uh, has always been the um, the like the noun that I have used on my site to be sort of the out the, the, the identifier of who I'm talking to. And, uh, it's a term that I draw from my Buddhist lineage training. And it's a term with a pretty interesting history in the history of Buddhism, where like very early, like monastic traditions of Buddhism used the word householder sometimes as almost an epithet to denigrate people who have like jobs and families and, um, you know, have to worry about money and possessions and things of that nature. Like they couldn't ever be like serious spiritual practitioners like the monks who are who are often referred to as home leavers, right? Like people who have left their worldly conditions behind and gone off to meditate forever. Um, that changes a lot as Buddhism moves around. And also it's like arguably a misinterpretation of like core teachings that weren't really trying to say that strict of a thing. Um, but there are lots of traditions uh, of Buddhism, including, I would argue, kind of the whole Chinese tradition from which Zen, which is what I have been trained in, is descended, um, that 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 really elevate and celebrate the householder. And there there are also texts that that are kind of the whole purpose of which is to for to show the Buddha venerating a householder so that people understand that like this is a very high form of practice. And this is something my teacher often says to me. My, my Zen teacher doesn't want me to go shave my head and be in a monastery. He thinks that would be like too easy for my karma. You know, the 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 fact of the matter is he had a, a tumultuous life as a householder and is now a Zen priest. And so he sort of says to me all the time, like, you're doing the hard one. This is like the, the, the thankless task of like being a parent to toddlers and a good spouse and having a job and which I don't, you know, that we don't have to talk about career too much, you know, do, doing all the householder stuff of like being in the world and juggling all these things and uh, having a spiritual practice to sustain it all is actually kind of hard mode, or at least it's a version of hard mode. And so something that I have long since realized after my many years of sort of wanting to leave the world and go meditate forever, uh, I, 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 but that never, that never happened to me. You know, I even got the chance a fair number of times and just decided that wasn't the move. And, uh, you know, by now I realized that it's definitely my lot in life, and I would even argue, like from my Jewish lineage standpoint, like it's my highest calling to be a father and a husband and a and a do and to do work that can pay me to feed my family and house them and all of those things. And I need a lot of refinement and energetic support and you know emergency decompression techniques and all of these things in order to do that. And so. I felt that there was a need for community among householder practitioners of whatever spiritual paths people are on because finding time, the classic thing, and this is true, and I'm not just talking about like people old enough to be married and have families and whatnot, whatnot. I'm talking about people with jobs, people in college, people who are not like 
leaving society as currently constituted uh, to solely pursue spirituality. Like the classic feeling is like, how do I balance my time? How do I have enough time for these things? And like, really the answer comes down to, you need support. You need, you need, you need advice and recommendations and support and the, and community. And so I felt that there was a, a real need for that, that people were meeting in interesting ways online in the way that many, many people found sort of that spiritual outlet online, particularly in the pandemic years, where like you needed a sort of um, haven from how crazy everything was. And there were people who also needed that. And so coming online was a way of being together with them. Over time, I realized that householders have particular, for lack of a better word, use cases, like technically speaking, for that ability to have, and, and you know, may not have the time to like fully throw themselves into in-person face-to-face communities uh, like my wife and I do, but that's because we've made it our life to do that. That is the work in our, in my house. Um, but even so, you know, there are things that I need from my own, for my own practice that I can't find in my local community. And so I decided to build a place online for people at any stage of, of householder practice, because I think intergenerational relationships are a very critical component of that, of how you learn how to handle all of this and whether you're going through something that no one else in the world has ever gone through before or whether this is something that you might be able to find support and experience on. I needed a place for that. So I decided to build one. And, you know, I made it as an extension of the site that I have where I write about this stuff and then also offer astrology tuned to this. Like, I guess there's a transition there sort of between the astrology that we were just talking about and this. It's like, I do astrology on everyday problems. Like, you know, that's that's what it's there for. And the, you know, the, the phrase that I use on my site is getting through it. You know, it's a way to help people get through the stuff that's happening to them. Uh, so like, these were all things I was doing and I decided to add uh, membership to my site, which is what Householders is. Um, and Householders membership comes with steep discounts on astrology because you've like sort of shown support for what, this project. But it also comes with access to a message board called base, which is a pun uh, on a Hebrew or Yiddish word. He, the Hebrew word is bait in Yiddish people say base uh, and it means house. And uh, and it's, it's bait is the word that just means house, but but you'd say like bet sefer means like school, like a house of books. Uh, and so base, which is spelled B-A-S-E on my site, like base of operations is a pun on the Yiddish word base. And uh, it's a place that people can come together asynchronously to post, you know, whatever kinds of householder things they're needing or feeling or thinking or, you know, you know, watching, listening to whatever it is. Um, and then there's also a chat layer on top of that where people can hang out in the manner of the group chat as the sort of you know, definitive conversational medium of the iPhone age. Uh, and the uh, people who are there know that everyone else there is committed to being there. It's a year-long membership. So the, the term, it's priced up front for an entire year of being there, um, which I did on purpose, like resisting the sort of trend to add like another $5 a month thing to everybody's credit card bill, like everything does these days. I wanted people to who who might want to dip in and out to be dissuaded from joining. I wanted people who were there to be there to show up 
and felt to, to feel motivated to keep showing up for, you know, at least a year. So, you know, that everyone else there is there in that way and is committed and is there for the same reasons as you. And what I found is that I was right about what that would incentivize, which is that it makes it very trusting and very safe. It's a private space. Like there's no like random drive-by replies happening. Um, you know, there's very clear guidelines about sharing stuff that was posted there. And people have really taken to it as a kind of haven because this stuff, this is the key thing really about householders and why it's important to have a space dedicated to that kind of practice. This stuff is very sensitive. You can't talk about parenting on social media safely, safe, safely for yourself and getting railroaded by crazy people, safe for your children by airing out things that are happening to them in public that they could find later. There, there needs to be a safe haven to discuss the things that householders need to discuss and find the support that we need. And so that's what I built. Mm, awesome. I love that the asynchronous correspondence piece is there again with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you find that there are people either like of a wide age range there or just in really different phases of kind of like I'm in college, I have young children, I have grown up kids. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's still early days. This only launched in December. Um, but the, the range that has shown up has been pretty wide. Like I, I, like I was sort of afraid actually that it was going to be all people in the exact same stage of life as me, like mid thirties with little kids. And that's like half of them. Um, and, and, you know, I might argue that those are the people who need the support the most. So it's not just, you know, it's like that, that's the, 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 the people in my situation are desperate for this. I was desperate enough to build an entire website for it. And the other people who are there are similarly desperate, but there are plenty of people there who are at maybe like the stage before that of like young people with jobs, various relationship statuses, thinking about the future and what to do. And so that's sort of the next biggest tier. Then there are a few people who are a little bit older than me, some of whom have made different householder choices, like not to have children or not to get married. And that's a very welcome thing to have because I really don't want it to be like normative that what the people in this community are, are parents married people, people married to one person uh, who have children. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of a, like a, weirdo elder contingent which is very very welcome and something that i want to actively recruit for actually honestly um and what I, I would also like to see more people even younger like like people people who are um you know maybe in college maybe just out of college people who are like trying to decide what to do that would feel like a very healthy intergenerational community to me because i've and, and the reason why is not because like those people will be around for a long time or something it's like those people are younger enough than I am to represent like a meaningfully different perspective. And I want and diversity in this community is a critical value to me. So, you know, that's that's uh, the, the easiest way to cultivate it in a community that's for householders is to have a wide range of ages because people are going through different things at different times from different perspectives. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about how broad householders is. I love that it is it is kind of specific, but also incredibly broad. Yeah, it's it's meant to be open and inclusive. But what it's meant to do, I think, most of all, is sort of discourage the kind of like 
experience junkie enlightenment chasing stuff that tends to dominate on online spiritual spaces uh, because I think those are dead ends and I think that they're antisocial and I think that they're um, harmful to lots of people. And I mean that in a very literal sense. I'm not even just talking about like psychic egregore attacks or something. I'm talking about like psychosis, you know? And like, I I, I don't want it to be uh, the normative mode of talking about spirituality, that you're talking about something very extreme and wild. And that, you know, there are lots of like gendered problems with that too. And like, I, you know, th there are certain kinds of practice are valued higher than others. And, you know, I don't want to overly gender what I'm doing either, but like, I don't think that, you know, the subtle energy work of emotional labor in household or environments, for example, gets celebrated with the same reverence as like, what level of meditation are you on does online. So I wanted to make a very clear alternative to that. Wow, I'm like having an emotional response to that. That's really beautiful. And I, yeah, I can really feel um, um, how underrepresented that feels in like the spiritual communities that I've explored. So yeah, oh, that's beautiful. Um, let's see. I think let's go ahead and transition into the culture piece. And I think that we've already talked about like plenty of things that will end up weaving into this. We talked about many of your lineages and I want to hear about how all of that plays in. We've talked about your spiritual community and I'm very curious about how you navigate that diversity of experience and cultural representation there. Um, it's such a big topic. It's a little yeah. hard to like figure out like, okay, like where do we jump in? You've written lots and lots and lots of words about this on your blog. You, you tag your posts on your blog. So one of the tags or one of the topics that you write about is culture. Um, yeah, I feel like I've been, we've been friends for a couple of years. I feel like I've probably been watching from afar. You write about this for the last year or so. And I um, have been kind of like following that narrative. And it's, it's been clear to me the whole time that like, there's really a there there, not just generally, but for me personally. And I've also been it's a little hard to explain the way that I think of like understanding things for myself personally is that they have to kind of like wash all the way through me, mm -hmm. all the way through my body, my being, my field, whatever you want to call it. Um, and my reading on of like when I've read what you've written about this, I feel like it's partially washed through me and it's like bumped into stuff and there's been some confusion and like but but it's resonated enough that I can feel that like it wants to go all the way through. <laughs> and so it's uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast. Um, I also want to be really sensitive to the fact that like the burden of education for these types of matters tends to fall to people in like minority groups and oppressed nice. groups. And it can be exhausting and thankless and I don't really want to put you in the position of being like well you've written thousands of words on this but like start from the beginning and explain like I'm five you know um but we do have to pity the podcast listener who might be coming in kind of contextless so um if you could kind of like distill what you are trying to say about the intersection of culture and spirituality into like a few minutes or an introduction how would you do that I'm ready for it, Jane. I'm here for that. I, <laughs> I, 
I, I the the thing that you pointed to about the time frame is very revealing of what happened here, which is that I came on to Twitter specifically, uh, you know, after years of not using it, to find people to talk about Zen practice with at the time when we could only talk online with people at the very beginning of the height of the pandemic. And that's when we found each other and like all these other people that were around. And it began exactly the way I wanted, where I was talking about my practice, they were talking about their practice, we were comparing notes, everything was wonderful. But in the manner of an intellectual scene, the discourse evolved over time. And I began to realize that there was something deeply missing in a lot of the conversation, which I would probably best summarize as a particular an awareness of the particularity of perspectives. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that there was a dominant culture in that scene that I recognized as the dominant culture in every scene I've ever been in in my life as a member of a minority culture that isn't dominant, at least in many respects. Uh, like, meaning... I am a white person. Like I have been in this situation of being the dominant culture in particular situations. But like in most situations I've been in my life, I've been the Jewish person in a de facto Christian environment or de facto like Western rationalist, materialist environment, academic environment, whatever it is. That is an experience that's been constant in my life. And I was having it again in this environment where people were using the tools of other cultures as their own tools without understanding that they were borrowing something from someone else and using it in a particular way that was particular to them. Here's what I mean. It was a dominant culture that didn't realize it was a culture, but rather had the point of view of being of transcending culture, which is not a thing that is real. It is a, it is that that is like an aspect of the construct that I would call. I would call out as whiteness to believe that there is such a thing as like an oversoul or like an like a like a universal human that is beyond and outside of culture who can interpret and internalize the output of any other culture and understand its function in that culture and like extract it for its own purposes. That isn't a thing. That isn't real. That is a that is a, an attitude of a culture whose like desire, conscious or unconscious, is just to consume all of the other cultures and be the best culture, the one left. And that's the thing that like Jewish people have been fleeing the entire time, <laughs> you know, with that brief period thousands of years ago where they had a temple and a place that they conquered from other people. You know, like it's 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 an imperial attitude. And the, the tools of philosophy and rationality and all of those things, those are the tools of empire. Those are the tools of like a, of a globe spanning project that consumes all of the other cultures in its path. And I simply wanted to call attention to the fact that that was happening. And there were there were so there are so many ways in which this plays out in this discourse. But one thing that was particularly uncomfortable for me at the beginning 
was how different my point of view was as a Jewish Zen practitioner who had been formally initiated into a Japanese Soto Zen tradition that came to the United States from the one that like white Americans from de facto Christian backgrounds, but with no particular like religious or spiritual practice, like derived from the Wikipedia page about Zen and started doing without any instruction and were comparing notes with me as though we were doing the same thing. And like, there was no language that I could use to get through to that person about what the difference was. And, and then, and it often takes like, you know, the, the, it, it often provokes the sort of defensive response of like your gatekeeping or whatever, or you're the one culturally appropriating because you're doing Japanese Zen as though like I was not granted, like, you know, there was a, there was an explicit mutual transaction that took place to initiate me into that lineage. And it was one I took extremely seriously, you know? So like, it's, it, it's, it seemed like a categorically different thing to me. There was no, no way to bridge that gap. And so that was why I started writing about this. And this inevitably led me to writing a lot more about Judaism and Jewishness than I was at the beginning. And that kind of is where it took off. Cause I had to explain what I was talking about as an example. And so like as a personal example, like a lifelong example, not one that I chose as an adult and was initiated into. Um, and that's when it really caught fire for me because so many of the people that I was talking to were either from, they were either refugees from like religious Christian backgrounds or they were just raised in the sort of Christian milieu without much education or practice or anything. And there were a lot of specifically messed up attitudes towards Jews and Jewishness that I kept running into as I wrote this. And it just spiraled until like really this kind of took over as the main thrust of what I'm writing about, uh, other than the householder piece. But like they're not separable, really, because like the the role of a householder is a culturally contingent defined thing. Like that's like the it, who are the householders in your culture? is like, is an important part of understanding like who you are or who you're gonna be as a householder um, or not as a householder. So you you can't really have a householder in isolation in this atomized, like, uh, you know, you know, there's there's a lot, a lot of people talk about the atomization of the nuclear family and all that stuff, all that modern stuff. That, that, that isn't real either. What you're in is a culture of families that are isolated from one another. And like, it doesn't have to be that way. And it's a cultural problem. Um, yeah, you're right. This is a huge topic and there's so many ways into it, but like that, I hope at least explains how I got to that as a topic that was inseparable from the other stuff, all the spiritual practice stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's see, maybe from here, why don't we talk about what it's like for you when you've gone into a new lineage, like Soto Zen, or like when you started studying astrology and what it's like to, um, well, you use the word transaction and I'm curious about that, like being initiated yeah. in your Zen lineage. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And then also like how those cultural pieces end up fitting together for you. I think that's the best example. The, the astrology ones are complicated because that's about like resuscitating a, a like a bunch of traditions that went went dark and were repressed over time. And you know, like there's there's it's very the the, the lineage of traditional astrology is being like actively reconstructed uh, by the people doing it. Whereas like Soto Zen is like a pretty damn formal thing that has basically been preserved to the letter 
Um, so, and, you know, tradition, like, like it traces, like when you state, when you express in the ritual where you're conferring lineage on somebody in Soto Zen tradition, you literally start at the Buddha and you name every single person in the sequence of people all the way to you. So like, you know, that's, that's how serious Soto Zen is about lineage. And what I mean when I say transaction, this is so great because I actually have like a one sentence thing that I posted as like a tweet that I haven't developed on like what I mean by this word. Well, how about how this is a business deal and everything that that entails. And like, I mean that to sound kind of shocking and and, and maybe disturbing and like maybe like unspiritual, whatever that means. Uh, but but it, it it is actually critical to what it is. So here's what I mean. My lineage was founded by a Japanese man named Soyu Matsuoka Roshi, who immigrated to the United States from Japan in the 1930s, making him what maybe 20s, I can't remember. I can't remember whether which whether the 30s is the started the thing date or the move to US date. But but in, in any rate, he was one of the first Soto Zen teachers to ever come and teach Americans. And he first ministered to Japanese Americans and had like this whole World War II story where he was like advocating for people in internment camps and stuff. Um, after the war, he moved to Chicago where he decided to start his end center in order to teach white American, I mean, not explicitly white Americans, but like he had this encounter with like the, you know, Star Spangled Banner and he wanted to like infuse the, the wisdom of everyday wisdom of householders Zen into that culture, into that multi-culture and see if it helped anyone. So he started the Zen center and that's where my teacher found him. Um, you know, he was a, my teacher, my direct teacher, Michael Elliston Roshi, uh, was like a design student at the, at the uh, art institute in Chicago, like a student of Buckminster Fuller. He was like a hardcore, like hipster, intellectual, beatnik, white guy from the Midwest, you know, who grew up on a farm. Uh, and he and a bunch of other people like of equally impressive weirdness, uh, like began sitting with Matsuo Groshi and found this like, this guy who was patient enough in exactly the way you were just describing about like like the my, the token minority like being asked to do this thing like Batsuokuroshi was there in order to puncture all of the romantic ideas that they might have had about the exotic east and teach them like the real everyday boring essence of zen and they learned it and they and it became part of their lives and so my teacher then moved to, uh, well, I, I I can't, there are a few steps in between, but eventually ended up in Atlanta, founded the Zen Center. It became this, this whole fairly well-distributed lineage. It's not a big one or a very well-heeled one. It's a, it's a, it's a janky, wonderful down-home Zen lineage. Uh, and so it's here for me, you know, from Japan via my teacher from the Midwest. And that is something that they made very clear. And the uh, the 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 transaction part is like, uh, I mean, it's 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 I don't I it's it's hard to talk about because it makes it sound coarse or materialistic or something. But it's like Matsuo Garoshi started a good thing. It is a thing that will sustain the Dharma. 
in this country. It has transformed over one generation of transmission into something that feels very authentically, not just American, but like regional to where I live and like who the people are here. Can and, I ask you, can yeah. I interrupt to ask you how it feels how regional? Oh, how well, it's, 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 I mean, it's because it's, uh, I, I think the first thing that happened was that Matsuo Kuroshi made it very participatory and, and was very enamored with like, American music and TV and food. And so, you know, they were like eating burgers and drinking beer and the Zendo and talking about, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't like a preciously, like the, the forms that he, I mean, what the, the effect of that was that the forms, the Japanese forms that he retained were retained for very clear reasons, or at least they were clearly very important to him. So that, so that, you know, like the fact that we still bow to each other like this meant something to those people because they realized that they were not like, pretending to be Japanese in very many ways. And so like that process has continued with people coming in and bring, you know, the, the art and music thing is important because it has brought in pretty creative people into this lineage. And so, you know, people were setting the liturgy to acoustic guitar songs and things of that nature, which happens in a lot of religious traditions in this country, but like doesn't happen to Zen very often, you know? And so, uh, the combination, I would say, of that like openness to being to like incorporating the culture of its participants while retaining this like very, very formal um, practice tradition uh, made it into something unique to each Sangha within this lineage. Um, and, you know, I noticed that immediately. And then the place, the, the place where I sit is like a mile from the house I grew up in. And it just like, you know, it, it felt like it was there for me. Uh, and that turned out to be true. And so there was a transaction at some point where I had to be like, I am offering my time and money to this Sangha in order to take on the literal vestments of this tradition. And like that has come with expectations on me to like represent the Dharma in various ways. And, the, you know, every way you've ever seen me represent the Dharma has been part of that process. And it's evolved a lot. But like at this point, I think Sensei thinks of what I'm doing with householders as like a sort of satellite project of our lineage and lends his support to it. And, you know, I still meet with him weekly for Dokusan. And like, that is a thing that I want to extend to householders if I can. And it's not like it's exactly like a financial relationship that we have, but like me making this into a professional-ish pursuit of mine is what enables me to continue supporting the Sangha with my donations. And like, we all recognize that and we're above board about it. It's about sustaining. It's a householder attitude towards like the reality that like money exists and that like, in order for good things to happen, people have to show up and do work. And that's what joining a lineage means. It doesn't mean downloading the instruction manual and keeping it for yourself. Hmm. Yeah, that's so helpful. Um... I want to ask now, I think from the lens, that's kind of hearing about your, your being on the student side. Um, and I want to talk now about what it's like for you both running this householder community where lots of different cultures are represented. And then also in your astrological work where you're supporting somebody who likely has a very different cultural identity than you do. Um, and I also want to, there's like something I'm trying to drill down towards that I don't really know how to word, but it's something about like, <laughs> um, I have often felt cultureless. I have often 
you know, in this time that I've been seeking, I've been seeking truths that feel um, maybe transcendent of place or time or circumstance. You know, I, I relate to all of <laughs> these conditions that you're describing as like um, turning into something dangerous. And um, there's the way that you've talked about it in your writing is like a uh, colonizer. And you, you described it also as like relating it to whiteness. Um, and so... I'm wondering, like, when your job as an astrologer is communing with celestial bodies in the sky above everybody's head, like, how do you sort of find that line between cosmic, collective? I'm always interested what people mean when they say collective, if they use that word, you know, um, because I think that gets thrown around a lot and people yes. probably mean really different things by it. But how do you find that line between cosmic, collective and working with people um from all different walks of life with like cultural sensitivity i love this question so much i i i want to i want to bookmark the thing that you said about whiteness because just remind me that if i don't get back to that that, yeah. that i need to say something about whiteness um the line is the horizon the sky is everywhere but every point on the ground has a different perspective on it. They're they're not separable from each other. So when I say okay, so your 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 flag on the word collective is beautiful to me. For me, it's the pronoun we because something I encounter online constantly is people telling us what we should do or what or describing what we do that has nothing to do with me that I've never done in my life. And it's like an act of violence almost sometimes that to like want to include me in some certain things. And that happens when your perspective is dislocated. It's like delineating a birth chart for someone without knowing what time, because they don't know where the horizon is. And, and that's, that is the same mechanism as the thing I was talking about before, that sort of philosophical approach where like everything can be understood in the terms of the person doing the understanding. You're trying to encompass other people. And like perspective is not separable from the collective. Every single person in the collective, even within a culture, has a perspective. So when I convene groups of people, I never do that from any kind of encompassing perspective. I, I am always offering my own perspective. And, and, and one way that I try to foster diversity in the spaces that I'm in is by offering my own perspective in order to demonstrate the process of offering one's perspective as a limited perspective and receiving the perspectives of others in a way that is safe, but also sovereign and pushing back on things that are, you know, like consumptive in nature and showing people in the space that it's okay to do that. And that the value is to be your, to, to bring your own perspective and to show the authority of this perspective amongst other perspectives with their own authority. And it's, a, it's harder when doing astrology because 
you know, you're 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 saying what the what something billions of years old has to say about something. Uh, but again, it's always from my perspective. So this is why I have like the, I I don't have an offering that's just like let me interpret your natal chart for you, because I am not ready to do that. What I do instead is interpret is the, the offering that I have that is closest to that is called a weather report, uh, which is basically a transit reading, a reading of the real-time chart as an expression of the client's nativity to talk about what's happening for them right now. So that what that does is it enables me to include that, even that natal reading in the listing of other things that I offer that are that are basically me saying, here's the astrology of what I'm looking at right now. And I never frame a horary answer as anything other than my perspective, which is 80% accurate. <laughs> You know, like it's like it's it's not I'm not offering any kind of objective truth that is in, inherent in the word medium, which is we've raised a couple of times very juicily without actually unpacking, is that the medium is in the middle. The medium is in between some kind of reality external to the situation and the person who is there to do the receiving. So the best I, I will never put myself at the top. I'll, the best I will do is put myself in the middle between them and somebody else that I know how to talk to. Something else, some other situation that I know how to understand because I've trained in it. So uh, that that is the um, the way that I handle it. But I wanted to say something about whiteness um, and perspective in, in the terms that I just laid out. You use the word culturalist, which is something that I hear from people apologetically all the time. And what I want to say to people who say that to me, I'm not saying that you like deeply identify with this as true for you, but like what I want to say when people are feeling that way is like, that isn't true. You do have a culture. The whiteness thing is thinking you don't have a culture because that's just like the, like the version of like the cringing version of like, I don't have like all of my ancestral things are destroyed and I have no resources. Like that's just like the inversion, the like liberal inversion of the like more authoritarian like proclamation that you're beyond culture, that every culture belongs to you, right? The truth is you do have a culture. You learned to speak somewhere. You learned like several things from your parents, I would imagine, <laughs> you know? Like you, you had like friends who were into stuff that you were also into or that you weren't into. These are all the structures of culture. Maybe what was missing, and I don't want to presume, because I know a little bit about you, but you know, like, and we've like spent time in my living room, but like I, you know, I don't know your whole cultural background, but like the 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 thing that might be missing might be more specific. There might be a few things that are more specific. Jewish people love to use the word tradition. Like, what are your traditions? But like singing happy birthday is a tradition. You may have like a special family modification of happy birthday that you sing. That's a tradition. That's particular to your culture and to your perspective. All of these things count. And they count to me at the same level as something 5,000 years old that I do in my house. They're all from particular places. They all carry particular wisdom. There's the, what's true is that every single human being has access to what being a human being is like. 
And so that means that every time that every individual person does something that they received from someone else, they are enacting the like full potential of the human being to transmit culture and tradition. And so all it takes, this is, I'm saying this as though it's not a huge deal that takes a ton of work, but like all it takes in order to create tradition is to share, is to do a thing and share it. And everything counts. You don't, your tradition doesn't, your culture doesn't have to have a name to you. Your culture doesn't have to be something that you can follow back multiple generations. As long as you can attribute it to someone or something that you've encountered or experienced, like you received that legitimately. The thing that's important to me to convey to people who believe that that hasn't happened to them is that it has, and that you have to remember that it has, and that's how you got like this. That's how you became the one that's speaking. So like that is something everyone can do. And I'm saying that that's all, that's, that's like the, with that starting point, you're like already off to the races on all of this work. Because if we can all do that together, we're building culture in the real like biological sense that I mean it, of the like densely interwoven web of genetic and phenotypic transmission of stuff that survives. That's what we're all doing on this planet. And I mean like everything is doing on this planet, everywhere. So participate in it in order to grow, not in order to consume and destroy. Yeah, I love this. Um, yeah, there's a lot coming up for me. There's something that we're talking about. Well, one thing I wanna say, you kind of talked about when you like running your community, for example, the way that you present yourself. I have noticed on your website, for example, that you're very, um, you bring a lot of attention to detail around like talking about your lineage and sort of telling your story uh, in a lot, yeah, in a lot of detail and with a lot of um, attention to like the history of your lineages and those kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. So that feels notable. I also, I love this question of sort of like finding a way in and you've been talking about that for people. <laughs> it's funny when I said with what you were just saying, I was thinking about me saying culturalist and like my ancestors just like rolling in their graves. You know? <laughs> just like, what is she talking about? I also have ancestors, like recent ancestors from like all over the world. So it's yeah. like just super untrue. But um, there's something else in your writing that really struck me as like another way in. Um, let me find it. Oh, yes, this is from one of your blog posts. An experience of culture I have had is feeling at home in it, understanding my place in it, relating inside of it with other members of it, and luxuriating in the ease of communication it facilitates and simplifies. When you said that, I was like, oh, that, like, I I know who those people are, and, like, that, I know that feeling. I know that luxuriating in the ease feeling, and that, like, that is big clues for me of like what my culture is you know yes. like what are the what are the what are the situations where I feel that way um yeah I also I haven't read much of your your Torah posting blog posts but there are examples specific language examples that you give there where I like feel the ground shaking underneath me a little bit because it's like oh I did not even know that this concept that I related to was cultural you know mm -hmm until I hear this like vastly different example yes. of like, welcome to the Bible James <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Um, I mean, I've I've also like studied other languages, so I've had I've had that experience somewhat. But um, yeah, I think just another way, like I've just started to explore my ancestry more in the last couple of years, and like the absolute richness of that for me and like for them. You know, I think that um, the there's yeah, there's so much to explore there, and probably I mean, not everybody has records and things, but I think most people probably can find something and and um, go from there of like well there's another thing that I heard you say probably on Twitter a while ago of like doing things every day that were important to your ancestors mm -hmm. as a practice yeah. yeah yes it's a huge shortcut like it's it's knowing your ancestors can be hard for all the kinds of reasons that you mentioned but I found that well and and having having a vehicle like Judaism is a great way to uh, like, guess what your ancestors might have been like, you know, and what they might have done. Uh, but doing those things has a resonance, even even just very particular things that don't that aren't like written down in some tradition, things that feel resonant in that, that like genetic way are unmistakable, I think. And like, the, the like my my belief about ancestral practices is not like you should slavishly imitate the things that people from previous generations did. It's that there is resonance available to you that will show you how to naturally navigate all of these things. And like ancestral practices are one of the densest, most densely packed sort of packages of that that you can possibly find. And that includes recipes and you know, the taste of something um, or, uh, you know, some weird heirloom that you've inherited, like keeping that and putting it somewhere and seeing it like that counts for a lot. Hmm. We probably have time for one more question. So I think um, oh, there's like so much we could talk about here, but there's a piece that you wrote called, let me find it somatic imaginal and cultural modalities and that really jumped out at me you're not just talking about healers healers there mm -hmm. but it is one of the things that you're talking about and that's where i feel the most um personal relevance so i want to talk about um yeah is it let's see what's the question you mentioned cultural repair being done first before like working with somebody outside of your culture in like a healing or therapeutic context. Is that a fair? Um, I think what I meant was cultural repair, like do, like doing somatic and imaginal work with a broken culture organ is a risky proposition for offering it or receiving it. Like that, that's, that's, it's not about um, a procedure or an order of operations per se. And like, I think that people get a ton of value from receiving like work, like healing work from outside lineages. Like, I think that's a good idea. What I'm, what I'm talking about in that post is the way that that work lands in the recipient or 
the and they like like let's just leave aside the idea of like the unclean transmission of like somebody offering something that they're not actually like grounded and initiated in like that seems like a fairly obvious problem receiving such work or going after such work without like a like a healthy soil for it to grow in can cause weird things to grow or cause nothing to grow and that's what i'm talking about culture is like the vessel for all of those things. So, so the somatic is a more clearly defined thing, which I feel like is probably what, why you gravitate towards it as a modality, right? Like everybody is the authority on what is happening in their body. The, the thing that, that the imaginal layer of experience adds to that is a context for what certain things that come up in the body mean and relate to on an ongoing basis. And those do have deeply personal meanings, but they're inex but but those are also received from the outside as well. Like like the 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 things that things mean to someone are beyond them. That is meaning, meaning requires relationship. Like it doesn't mean anything if it's just from like, like there is no such thing as just like inside the box, right? So the symbols that are associated with experiences, instant culture has been imp imposed on what that is. Like that's, that's where those things come from. And that extends all the way down. As someone as trained as you are knows, to the subtle anatomy of the body, which is the way that we relate to the gross anatomy of the body. Like the, the, the your literal anatomy is involved in your culture. So you can't impose someone else's body on yourself. And there are side effects to trying to do so. I've had some weird things happen to me where like I would do qigong with tefillin on and like get sick to my stomach you would do qigong with what tefillin the 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 the, the leather boxes that jewish people wrap on when they're praying like like i i have done a lot of extensive jewish practice with those on and one day like three years ago when i just learned the qigong practice that i do i was like oh let's see what happens and i i, I did qigong with my body wrapped up in these like leather straps that are meant to like constrict you in prayer and i like became physically ill and like that's just a a particular example of something that isn't always so literal but it can cause brain worms, for lack of a better word, to feel like you have now taken on board some symbol, some some set of meanings that isn't actually like like a health, like it's not healthy for your culture to host or your body to host. People need to understand the sort of immune system layer of culture and how it preserves the health of the body, and that isn't that doesn't mean you can't look around the world for the lineages that may have the understanding that you need in order to heal your particular karma. It means that you need to know that that's what you're doing. And you need to go to someone who is prepared to transmit it to you in that transactional way, like I was describing earlier. Like there are also practitioners who are firmly rooted in their own traditions who have no idea how to transmit it to somebody else. 
And they would only be able to do that working in the way that would make sense in their own context. And that's not safe either for either one of you. So like, this is a high standard is what I'm trying to communicate. It's, I'm, I'm not saying something about like gatekeeping cultures or like, per, like only like stick with your own kind or some like racist idea like that. I'm talking about how high of a standard one must have for their own like refinement and receptivity to things and for other people's too so that like the transmission can be clean and safe and and like productive can 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 take root and grow into something beautiful and not just like cause a bunch of blinky lights in your brain like so many people seem to be seeking as the be all and end all of spiritual practice awesome i feel like that's a great place to end on um is there anything else that comes up for you anything that we've talked about today that you want to touch I back on so, jane that was one of the best conversations i've ever had i'm really grateful to you for like holding this and having such beautiful things prepared for us to talk about i'm like feeling it super hard and just want to bask in it yeah, I am too. I I admire your project so much and I've been admiring it from afar for a long time and also, you know, by um, doing astrology with you. Um, but yeah, I feel like similar to how I described the horary was like in motion. I feel like this conversation has been in motion for a long time and in preparing for, sure. for it, I just got to put so many pieces down that I've already, you know, been they've been swirling in my body mind for a long time. And, and as I said before, like, I have not done it anywhere near to the extent that you've done it, but in the the little moments where I've tried to um, make unpopular change in in communities and stuff, and the way that it's been received and pushed back, and how yeah, just exhausting and thankless it is. Just thank you for doing what you're doing when it's not always well received. It's so so important, and I've learned a lot from talking to you today. And it's going to be one of those conversations that I'm going to keep coming back to and chewing on. Well, I'm sure we're both going to come back to it together time and time again. And this is not our first podcast together. And I hope that the next one comes very soon. And, you know, this is this is a just like a very beautiful dialogue. And I want to keep it up. Me too. Thanks, Saul. Thank you, Jane.